reading from the second chapter of Mark. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was caught eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard, heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came to him and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for the fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey friends, good morning. Uh, my name is Jordan, and I'm a pastor at All Saints across town. Good to be with you all, um, and it's a great joy always to be here in this place, and as I said last time I was with you, All Saints really, we adore y'all, and we really care about y'all, and we pray for you, and I'm so encouraged even to hear that report that Kat just gave, and I do pray that if this man is the man for the job, the man that God would have here, that he would bring him here, so we thank God for you. Um, let me pray for us before we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, you must increase and we must decrease, and I do pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, in your son's name, amen. All right, well, even though I'm a youth pastor at All Saints, I'm supposed to be young and hip, the reality is that I'm getting older, okay? I realized this acutely recently, since the last time I was with y'all even, in which my wife and I had our first baby, I'm 29, I'm about to be 30, and the other day I found myself leaving the house wearing tennis shoes with jeans. It happened. And that's when you know you're getting older. That's when you know. And the reality is what I'm finding more and more is I'm actually turning into my dad. I'm telling like everything that my dad does, I've started doing. And uh, one of the things that my dad does is he gets on these little kicks. And so one of his kicks recently has been wine. He's been really into wine. And so I followed suit and I've gotten really into wine as well. What happens when people start to become wine people is it's not enough to just enjoy the wine anymore, right? 
You can't just sit down and drink and enjoy it, but you have to know all about it. And that's been the case with me. I have to know things. I have to know about the wine. So I have to know about the region of the wine and the tannins of the wine, the aroma of the wine, the bouquet of the wine. I have to know about the wine. But here's the problem. Every wine that I try all tastes the same to me. It like, all tastes the same. Every, every glass of red wine I try, it all tastes the same. I like pull out this little leather wine notebook that I have, and, and you know, there's a space where I'm supposed to write tasting notes. And the only tasting note I can ever come up with is raspberry. That's it. Like, I'm supposed to taste cherry, I don't taste it. I'm supposed to taste strawberry, I don't taste it. All I can ever come up with is raspberry. That's it. In our passage today, Jesus says that the good news of the gospel is like new wine. It's like new wine. That when Jesus comes into the world, something new is happening. Something altogether new. Something we've never seen before, something we've never tasted before. It's new. So this morning, what, what I want us to look at is a couple of things. First of all, I want us to look at old wineskins. What are the old categories and ways and ideas in which we try and put Jesus and trap him? And then I want us to look at the new wine of the gospel. So old wineskins and new wine. Well, all throughout Mark 1, as you may have seen last week, Jesus is a very popular teacher. He's a very popular healer. All these crowds are coming to him from around Galilee to listen to him, to hear what he has to say. But here in Mark 2, the crowds are going to start to diminish and evaporate because Jesus is starting to up the ante. He's, try, he's starting to reveal more and more of who he is, and people don't always like it. So what people are doing in Mark 2 is they're asking questions. They're asking questions of Jesus. They're trying to figure out who he is and what he's about. And we see that two times in our passage, people come to Jesus and they ask this question. That question is, why? Look down at verse 16. The Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they ask his disciples, why does Jesus, your leader, eat? with tax collectors and sinners. What's happening here is Jesus is at a dinner party at the home of Levi, a tax collector. It's a party filled, on the one hand, with respectable people like the scribes and the Pharisees, but on the other hand, with unrespectable people like tax collectors and what the text just calls sinners. These are people of the streets, people like prostitutes and drunkards. Now, the Pharisees, you'll probably know about them, that their question here is coming from a place of deep concern about ritual and moral purity. One of the things the Pharisees were trying to do in the time of Jesus, they were trying to put a type of hedge or law, or excuse me, hedge or fence around the Jewish law in order to protect themselves. They thought, as long as I stay within the fence, within the hedge of the law, I'll remain clean and pure and right with God. And the Pharisees believed that one of the ways you became unclean and impure and not right with God was by eating with dirty people, eating with people that are at this party. And so they ask, why? Why is Jesus eating with these people? And then look down again in verse 18 when another group of people comes to Jesus and asks him again, why? Why do your disciples not fast like the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples? And this time the question isn't about feasting, but it's about fasting. And it's a legitimate question because after all, fasting was a cornerstone of Jewish spirituality. And fasting is commanded throughout the Old Testament. 
So Moses fasted for 40 days before he went up on Sinai. King David fasted. John the Baptist and his disciples fasted. Jesus even fasted when he went into the wilderness in his temptation in Mark 1. But here, no more fasting. Why? And in both cases, we see, as the Bishop Robert Barron points out, that Jesus simply does not fit into any of the pre-existing Jewish people groups. In other words, he doesn't separate himself from society like the Essenes. He's not obsessed with ritual purity like the Pharisees. And he does not fast like John's disciples. He doesn't fit in. And the problem, really, is that Jesus is too new. Jesus is too new. What he is doing in the world is too large and too wonderful to confine within the old ways and the old categories. And it's a kind of newness that can only be captured by poetry. Look at the poetry in this passage. Verse 21, you cannot patch new cloth on an old garment or else the garment will tear. In verse 22, another image, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins will burst. See, today we put wine into bottles, but in the old days they put wine into animal skins. And these animal skins needed to be massaged, they needed to be supple in order to hold in the skins. But if you put new wine into these old skins, they would burst. That's what would happen. And what Jesus is saying through these images, he's saying, look, you're going to have to throw out your old ways, your old cultural categories about who you think that I am. Because if you don't, you'll diminish who I am and you'll hurt who you are. Both things will happen. You can't put me into old wineskins. And yet, friends, the reality is that many of us, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, try and put Jesus and fit him in into whatever it is that we already know or already think or already believe. Psychologists call this confirmation bias, right? We try to put new wine into old wineskins with Jesus. What are some of the ways that we do this? For religious people, I think one of our primary wineskins is something that is called moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's a mouthful, so let's talk about it, okay? In the early 2000s, a sociologist at Notre Dame named Christian Smith, he conducted a vast study on the landscape of faith and religion among American teenagers. And as a youth pastor, this study is of great interest to me. It's fascinating. I commend it to you. And what Smith discovered is that while the majority of teenagers in America in the 21st century profess Christianity... What they actually adhere to is something that doesn't at all match the faith of historic and creedal Christians. Something very different. He calls it the stepsister of Christianity, and he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. And essentially, moralistic therapeutic deism is a religion of three creeds, each made up by each of the three words. And the first is moralism. Moralism, that what God most wants from me is to be a good person. That's what he wants. And deep down, many of us are moralists. We're not just moral, but we're moralists. In other words, we trust in our morality. In other words, we can't get past the idea that what really matters in the end is following rules and being a good person. So maybe you're here, and you don't in any way identify yet as a Christian, but you believe deep down that in the end, what ultimately tips the scales in your favor is doing enough good things and avoiding the wrong things. That's what you believe. That's moralism. 
But others of us profess Christianity, but like the Pharisees, we're obsessed with rules. We can't stand the idea that getting right with God might not be something we can earn. And so what do we do? We believe that it has to be up to us. We rely on us and on our actions. That's moralism. It reduces Jesus to a great moral teacher, but not a savior. So the second creed of MTD is therapeutic. And that's that God wants me to be happy. And this is very prevalent, especially in our therapeutic age, in which the primary concern for most Americans is individual and personal happiness. We feel this in the city of Austin. And personal happiness then becomes the lens through which we view God and the lens through which we view Christianity. So we believe that God is on my team in my personal quest to be happy and that God is in the business of removing whatever stands, whatever blocks me and happiness. That's what God's about. And a moralistic and a therapeutic God inevitably ends in deism. And that's the third creed. Deism, the view of God that, in the words of the author, creates a distant God selectively available for taking care of needs. God becomes something like a combination, Smith says, between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves. But he doesn't become too personally involved in the process. And friends, I see this all the time, both in teenagers and adults. It's always amazing to ask kids things because they always give you a straight answer. So I'd love to ask my kids at All Saints, like, why is it a good thing to come to church? And what they always say is, they always say, it's good to go to church because it'll make you a better person because God will bless you. Moralism and a therapeutic view of God. But adults are privy to this as well. They do the same thing. I was talking to an older pastor the other day. And something that he pointed out to me is one of the patterns that he's seen in ministry. And that pattern is that whenever someone leaves their spouse, they oftentimes leave the Christian faith as well. Why is that? What had happened for that person is that God had become subservient to their personal happiness. As long as they were happy with their spouse, they were fine with God and they were fine with his rules. But as soon as they became unhappy, at that point, God needed to stay in his lane. God never had the right to tell them what they could and could not do. And so when he has certain laws about marriage and divorce, you can't do anything but do away with God. That's MTD. It's an old wineskin, but it's a very prevalent one in the American church. But I think there are other ones as well. Especially in 2019, it's very tempting to fit Jesus into social and political wineskins, right? So either Jesus is a suburbanite that cares about family values, or he's an urbanite that cares about social justice. We say God's primarily concerned with personal holiness on the one hand, or he's primarily concerned with systematic inequality on the other. But either way, Jesus is on my side. He's on my team. So the question that all of us must ask, the question that Mark 2 forces us to ask in these conversations and these questions with Jesus is how have I reduced Jesus? How have I reduced him? How have I tried to fit him into my old wineskins, whether those are cultural or intellectual or social or political? And if you're wondering what it might be for you, think about what it is that you love. Think about what it is that you love. If we love our free time, our calendar becomes a wineskin. It's hard to fit Jesus in. 
If we love our intellect, rationality can become a wineskin. It's hard to fit miracles in the supernatural in. We love pleasure, personal autonomy is our wineskin. Jesus cannot tell us what we can and cannot do. But friends, Jesus claims here in Mark 2 to burst all of these wineskins with a new wine. That's what he does. He claims to do away with everything that is old in and through his gospel. So let's look secondly at this new wine that Jesus talks about and ask, what is it? What is this new wine? In other words, what is it that makes Jesus so different and so new from every moral teacher, from anyone in his day? What's new about the new wine? Okay? Well, it's the beginning of a new year, and it seems that we're all desperate for good news. So desperate, in fact, that I saw recently that the New York Times has begun publishing a weekly feature called The Week in Good News. And it comes out on Fridays, every Friday, and it's a roundup of everything good and everything happy that has happened in the world in the last week. So this past week, this past Friday, their list featured the following things. A list of 52 places you should travel in 2019. A rendition of Baby Shark by a Korean pop group that has now been viewed 2.1 billion times on YouTube. A report on the complexity of humpback whale songs. And the reason behind why 70% of TSA airport dogs have floppy ears. This was the good news that they compiled. And I'll let you decide whether any or all of these things are, in fact, good news. But according to the New York Times, it is, and they are. But either way, it's important to remember, as you kick off your series in Mark, that Jesus begins his public ministry in Mark by talking about good news. His first words in Mark 1 are, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel, of course, as many of you know, comes from the Anglo-Saxon word God spell or good story. And that word traces back to the Greek word euangelion, which means simply good news. And for the, for the Greek language, this word euangelion was reserved for only the best news. Only the best news. The news whenever a new king was crowned or seated to the Roman throne. Only on special occasions did you use the term euangelion. And yet here's Jesus beginning his ministry by saying, I have good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. A new story is being written in the world. And I'm writing it. And we see signs of this gospel. We see signs of this good news all throughout Mark 2 in our passage. What do we see? Well, the first thing we see, the first sign of newness we see is a new community. Looking back at the beginning of our passage, we read that Jesus is passing by the sea when he sees this man Levi, a tax collector. And many of you will know that in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not popular men. In fact, they were reviled and hated, first of all, because they were cheaters. They were swindlers. But second of all, because they were seen as traitors. They worked for the Romans, so they were seen as traitors and as sellouts to the Roman Empire. And yet, these are precisely the kinds of people that Jesus is spending time with in Mark 2. These are the types of people that Jesus seems most interested in, people who are despised and hated, because here at Levi's house, all kinds of these people are inside the home. And the Pharisees hate this. They hate it. 
because this is not the dinner party that they would have gathered. Because what the Pharisees want is they want a community that's based on respectability. They want a community that's founded upon rule following and law keeping. What Jesus is establishing is a community that is founded on grace. The Pharisees want a kind of country club, and Jesus wants a kind of hospital. That's what we see in our text. We see that Jesus is establishing a hospital in the home of Levi, where the only qualification for getting in is being sick. What does he say? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, that's hospital language. Every other world religion, friends, says clean up, and then you can enter the presence of God. But Jesus says, come as you are, and I will make you well. And friends, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus creates hospitals. He creates hospitals, and he invites you into that hospital, whether you're a Pharisee and a scribe or you're a sinner and a tax collector. And inside that hospital, he restores you to health by giving you the new wine of his blood. The new wine that he pours out for you on the cross. The new wine that washes away your sins. The new wine that intoxicates you with his love. That's the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves as the church whether this new wine of forgiveness and grace is what marks us. In other words, do our churches look like and resemble country clubs or hospitals? What do they look like? In other words, are they filled with needy people or are they filled with self-sufficient people? Jesus creates a new kind of community here in Mark, one, Mark 2. That's the first thing we see about the new one. But the second thing we see is that Jesus creates not only a new kind of community, but a new vision for spirituality. We see that as we continue in our text. Last year, I was at a wedding for a dear friend of mine, and the wedding was during Lent, that season of 40 days in which historically Christians give up something for Lent as an act of penitence, as an act of penance. So for Lent, two of the other groomsmen at this wedding had decided that they were going to give up alcohol for Lent, okay? It's a perfectly great thing to give up. Many of us Presbyterians probably should think more about giving up alcohol for Lent, all right? But these men... Even though it was at one of the weddings for their best friends, it was very clear throughout the wedding weekend on Friday and Saturday and Sunday at all the various gatherings and parties that they were going to hold fast to their fast. They were not going to take a sip of alcohol. Again, it's a very fine thing to do. The other day I was sharing this story with a friend, and he said, I've got a better one for you. He said, I once knew a guy who also gave up alcohol for Lent, but he decided that he wasn't going to go to church during Lent because he didn't want to have communion. He couldn't taste the wine. Now, again, I want to be sensitive to those especially who struggle with substance abuse and addiction. It's a very real thing, okay? But the point of this story is that sometimes our spirituality can be very incongruent. In other words, what we perceive to be very spiritual actions and practices can actually very much miss the boat. And that's what Jesus is saying here in our passage. He tells these men who come up to him in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. And notice here, Jesus never says not to ever fast. He simply says not now. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. Israel had been waiting for hundreds of years to, on God's Messiah, and that had been the time to fast. 
But now the Messiah, the bridegroom, is here. As long as he's here, it's not the time for fasting. It's the time to rejoice. Time will come again when he leaves, when he's taken away. But as long as the bridegroom is around, it's feasting and not fasting. That's what Jesus says. So we see that the variable here for Jesus and for his vision of spirituality is Christ's presence. The variable is the presence of the bridegroom. As long as the bridegroom is here, you feast. When he's taken away, then you fast. And Jesus here, I think, teaches us a couple of things about Christian spirituality. First of all, he clarifies for us the aim of all our spirituality. He's saying that all spirituality, whether it's fasting or keeping the Sabbath or praying or reading the Bible, should always be aimed at the presence of Jesus. All of it should always be a means, in other words, of being with Jesus. Anytime these things become an end in themselves and not a means to being with Jesus, they are probably taking us further and further away from Jesus and not closer and closer towards him. The aim of spirituality is always Jesus' face. But second, Jesus also teaches us something about the attitude of spirituality. Because let's be honest, is there anything more joyful and more celebratory than a good wedding? There isn't. And all throughout the Old Testament, when writers like Isaiah described what it would be like for the Messiah to finally come into the world, they said it would be like a wedding. And so here in Mark 2, is it any wonder that Jesus takes up the language of a wedding to say the Messiah is here? And is it any wonder that Jesus' first miracle in John 2 occurs at a wedding in which the wine and therefore the joy and livelihood of the party is running out and he creates more wine out of water as if to say, I'm restoring all the joy and all the livelihood to our world. And what that means is that our spirituality now should be conducted with an attitude of joy and not mourning. Make no mistake, friends, as long as sin is in the world, there's a lot of sadness. On the way over here, I was texting with one of my friends whose brother is a 42-year-old pastor and he's about to die in the next three or four days of cancer. There's so much sadness. Okay, there's so much sadness. And yet, the claim of the gospel is that Jesus is coming again. He's going to do away with all the sadness. And when he does, it will only be feasting, and there will be no more fasting. So in the meantime, what do we do? Do we fast or not fast? We still fast, because we are waiting for the bridegroom to return again. But we don't fast with gloomy or long faces. We fast with a deep-seated joy that is greater even than our surface sadness, because we know and trust that he's coming again. So what's new about the gospel? What's new about the new wine? The first thing is a new type of community that Jesus is establishing. The second thing, we see this new vision of spirituality that he's informing us with. But there's also a third thing. There's also a third thing that we see here in this text. Looking back at our text, I want us to think about and listen to Jesus' poetry one more time. I want us to do so through the lens of creation. Through the lens of our world, the physical creation, okay? Listen to Jesus. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Because if he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, no worse tear is made. Listening to these words and meditating upon them this week, it was hard for me to not think of Psalm 102 when the psalmist sings, 
Of old, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, but they will perish, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. And listening to these words, it's hard not to think forward to Revelation 20, where John writes of the end of all things, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he who was seated on the throne, the bridegroom, the new wine, the new cloth, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. New, 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 new. It's amazing reading through the New Testament how many times you see the word new. Friends, the story of the world is that ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all of our creation, everything we see around us has become like an old garment. It has holes in it, holes, curses of sin and of death. And as it stands, friends, our present world, the world we see outside, simply isn't big enough yet. It's not large enough to contain all that God is doing in the world, to contain all of his glory. And that's why later in Mark 15... When Jesus dies and is placed in a tomb, when he's placed in the earth, the earth can't hold him. That's why on Sunday he gets up out of the grave, out of the earth. He is risen again because the earth cannot hold him. He's too large. He's too big. He's too new. He's creating an Easter world, a world that's marked not by sin and by sadness, but by life. As C.S. Lewis wrote, this world is a great sculptor shop. We are the statues, and there's a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. And that includes not just us, but the rocks, the trees, our city, the oceans, all of it. It's going to come to life. Friends, Jesus pours out the new wine of his gospel, and when he does, he creates a community that is marked by grace and not law. He creates a spirituality that is marked by joy and not austerity or sadness. And he creates a world that is under the spell of life and not death. There's been the new things he's doing, and they're beautiful things. Well, before seminary, I did campus ministry for two years at the University of Virginia. And if any of you, whether you went to UVA or if you spent any time around UVA or you know anything about UVA, you'll know that UVA is obsessed with Thomas Jefferson, right? Obsessed with the guy. And Thomas Jefferson, there's no doubt that he did many amazing things for our country and for democracy. But the more and more you learn about his life, the more and more you learn that in many ways he was a sad man. He was a very sad man. And many of you will know that he once created a Bible for himself. He created a Bible. We know it today as the Jefferson Bible. You can see it at the Smithsonian Museum. And this Bible he entitled, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Kids, does that sound like a Bible you want to read? That sounds really boring. But anyway, what he did in this Bible famously is he cut out the passages that he didn't like. In Jefferson's own words, here are the passages he didn't have time for. Passages pertaining to the immaculate conception of Jesus, his deification, the creation of the world by him, his miraculous powers, his resurrection and visible ascension, his corporeal presence in the Eucharist, the Trinity, original sin, atonement, regeneration, election, orders of hierarchy, etc. Okay? By the time that Jefferson had taken scissors to his Bible, 
what was left but an old garment? Jefferson's Bible is old. It's an old garment. It cannot contain all the beautiful things that Jesus was and is. For Jefferson, see, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great example. He was an inspiration to live a great life. But Jesus wasn't a bridegroom. He wasn't the lover of Jefferson's soul. For Jefferson, he might have been inspired, in other words, by Jesus, but he was in no way intoxicated by Jesus' love. For him, Jesus was a nice man, but he wasn't new wine. He wasn't someone who had come to revive our world of sin and death. So what is he to you? That's a question that Mark 2 asks. That's a question that all of Mark asks. What is Jesus to you? He says here that he's your bridegroom. He's the lover of your soul. His new wine has come to make you clean and well again. In a few short minutes, he's going to invite you to the table to drink that wine. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of your gospel. They're altogether true and beautiful and lovely. There are many things in this world that seem too good to be true. But in your case, you're both true and good. So we thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his death and resurrection. And praise these things in your son's name. Amen.